Welcome to episode 65 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast featuring conversations in Canadian theatre. On Stageworthy, I sit down with actors, directors, playwrights, and more and talk to them about their life in the theatre. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use and consider leaving a comment or rating. If you want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. My guest is actor, director, and playwright DJ Silvis. DJ is one of the founding members of Toronto's geekiest theatre company, Monkey Man Productions, and its playwright-in-residence. DJ, um, I guess a place that I want to start with with you is when did you start with theater? Not necessarily writing, or like, what was your introduction to theater? It probably would have been, and I didn't think of it as theater for a long time. I didn't. I was raised in a really um, conservative um, religious atmosphere. I went to a Christian school. Um, all of my like social activities were through church and like literally didn't know the rest of the world was out there. It was that sort of um, childhood. So what I knew was like church performances. Right. I knew like skits and like musicals for Christmas and things like that. And I always did well in those and I always had a pretty good singing voice and so I'd always get into choir and all of those things. So it wasn't until I switched back to public school, which would have been... Well, I switched back and forth a few times, but my senior year, I really sort of had started to rebel, and I was like, I'm... My parents had divorced, like, a year before that, mm-hmm. and so I was kind of like, I am going to experience the public school system before I, like, try to strike out on my own. And that was when I sort of realized that theater was a separate thing and certainly something I wanted to get involved in. Mm-hmm. I was... I wasn't. Do you sorry. remember what it was? Sorry, just to, just no, to jump in there. Do you do you remember what it what like theater was something you wanted to get involved in? Did you when did you get a sense of that? Was there something going on at school that you heard about or? Well, I think it would have been. It would have started through choir because in choir, of course, we did show tunes. Yeah, of course. And then um, they had a like sort of show choir thing, but I wasn't a great dancer, so I wasn't going to do that. <laughs> and in fact, um, my first real show as such was our senior the musical my senior year was Little Abner Mm -hmm. and I played um, Mary and Sam which is one of the supporting leads and was such a in fact speaking of dancing was such a terrible dancer that um, he has Mary and Sam has one huge song like at the at the wedding for Abner and whatever her name is (laughs) Ali Mae or whatever but Ali Mae is um, whatever the other thing but anyway so the big wedding and they started me out in the center, because it's my big song. They started me out in the center, like, doing all the same dance as everyone else. They slowly moved me further and further to the side until I was standing, like, far stage left that, singing, and that, was everyone during, else was dancing. Is it during the song? They start doing the well, no, over the, over the course of rehearsals. Oh, they, were like, they were like, DJ, could you just move a little further over and just let them... <laughs> um, in terms of uh, after that, 
So that was like a taste of what you wanted to do. Yeah, and actually, I decided just solely based on that, and based on my um, the acting teacher, um, Bill Kennedy, um, being like one of my favorite professors, one of my favorite well, you know, professors and high school teachers, that I applied for university as an acting major, having done virtually nothing else. <laughs> you know, some schools really want that, though. That's true. And this was like a very small state school in Western Pennsylvania, Clarion University. And I started out as an acting major. I auditioned, was accepted into the program. I auditioned with, this is, this is like, like the kind of person you are as a freshman. I auditioned with Cyrano de Bergerac and Macbeth. Okay. So, you know, not not you know taking on anything overly grand. Right? Mm-hmm. So, but but I got into the program and I did okay for a while. And then again, dance started to kill me. Mm-hmm. You have to pass pass dance one and dance two to be an acting major. I worked my ass off every day of dance one and barely mm-hmm. barely squeaked by. And I was like, "There's no way I'm passing the next class." It's funny. I mean, I know a lot of schools. They are. In their minds, they're like, we're preparing you to do as much as possible in the theater. Yeah. And um, that means musical theater. For, you know, you can do straight theater, but we want to make sure that you're ready for musical theater, which means we're going to try to teach you to dance. But to hinge, like, <laughs> passing on dance, because not everybody, I mean, I don't dance that well. <laughs> and if my becoming an actor had hinged on my ability to dance, um, I would, I would certainly <laughs> not be doing anything. Um, but, but I think it turned out to be a good mm-hmm. thing because, yeah. I mean, and I, I acted a lot after mm-hmm. that. I, I switched majors a few times and wound up graduating with a Bachelor of Science in General Studies, mm-hmm. which tells you about how far I sort of wandered afield. <laughs> <laughs> but um, found out pretty quickly in university after that that I liked to write. I mean, I'd always liked to write. I've yeah. written like, play, I mean, poems and short stories and stuff all my life, pretty much. But then sort of started to apply that to theater and had a few things produced as, a, as an undergrad. And, but then wound up again. It's like middle of nowhere in Western Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. I got married right out of, I took a year of grad school, didn't really mm-hmm. like it that much. Um, got married. My wife, my first wife was a um, middle school English teacher. And so we wound up moving around a lot for mm-hmm. her to have work. And I was in little towns where there was barely community theater, much right. less any sort of. Um, professional work so I acted a lot I did a lot of musicals I did practically everything Gilbert and Sullivan have ever written yeah. well, I did The Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. and, but um, it wasn't until I actually moved up here mm-hmm. moved to um, when I got married the second time moved to Canada and then eventually Toronto that I started sort of like, producing things myself and writing things for the company and all that when, when you were um, first starting to, to write for theater, is there? Because I know for me, I don't remember. I, I find it hard to remember when I started writing for theater, but I know that once I started, that's where my brain went. <laughs> and so I'm almost probably, like I have find it difficult to write not theater. Um, do you do you remember when you started to realize, like, start started to want to write for theater, or when that became a thing for you? I still have the first thing I wrote for theater. <laughs> I still have I saw the like the files going back because again it started at university. Mm-hmm. My first play and this should, like is kind of ironic considering the places that Monkey Man has gone since then. Mm-hmm. Um, my first play was a ten minute play about Godzilla in iambic pentameter. Okay, well, okay, so I, 
I, I, I, I have to. I wasn't surprised by the Godzilla. A little surprised by the iambic pentameter. Just that is terrible. I mean, everything, <laughs> I, everything I wrote in university is terrible. I, mean, I was just starting to get used to it. <laughs> everybody's first plays are terrible. Hell, everybody's like everybody's first drafts are usually. I know mine. Oh, are. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, when you when you moved to 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 Toronto to Canada and you started thinking about producing your own stuff, was that did, did were you trying to go the route of like try to get other theaters to do your stuff, or did you immediately know that you wanted to do this stuff yourself? No, I tried to do it that way. Again, like I, a lot of my experience was like in very small towns, and very I didn't really know how you went about. Mm-hmm. I had written plays. I'd had um, a play produced in Pittsburgh, actually, mm-hmm. a play of mine called "The Night at the Warhol." Um, my friend uh, Mike from university had started his own little company down in Pittsburgh and he produced it and so we had done that but I didn't know how you worked as a playwright beyond that so yeah. I so I moved up here and I moved to Toronto I knew there were theaters I started sending out I'm sure it was like the, one of the first drafts of Godzilla on Sundays which mm-hmm. was the like my first like big piece of work right. and sent it to like of course like shooting for the tops and it's like factory and sent it to Tarragon mm-hmm. and um, never heard a word back from them because why? Why would they? Yeah, I mean, generally, I, the, I mean, I, I definitely want to talk a little later about uh, pop culture and geek culture in, sure. in theater because I know that's something that that the Monkey Man uh, has done. That that's sort of where your brain goes as far as a lot of playwriting goes. Absolutely. Um, but you know, I mean, Godzilla on Sundays is <laughs> not really Factory Tarragon kind of kind of fair no but of course I mean you didn't you write a play you send it out you know that's what yeah. you do um, how long between writing Godzilla on Sundays to doing that at the New Ideas Festival I think it was probably I'm trying to think back now because God that would have been <laughs> no I'm trying to think of when I first moved because I moved to Canada in 2003 moved to Toronto in 2004, mm-hmm. so it was probably 2004-2005 that I was first writing it, mm-hmm. and then um, it would have been um, 2007 when New Ideas did, New Ideas did it, and mm-hmm. then we started the company in 2008. Well, I guess it would have been spring of 2008 then the New Ideas did it. So the, uh, like that show, that, that, that New Ideas festival, that, uh, that particular play, it was like the <laughs> formative thing for, for Monkey Man Productions. Is that, is that, is that where you met Marty? Is that where um, you met the court? I knew, I knew Marty a little bit from um, NaNoWriMo, mm-hmm. National Novel Writing Month, but only as, like, this is a person I've seen across the room. Right. We had never really talked or hung out or anything, but then um, I did get Godzilla into um, New Ideas, and he was one of the director candidates mm-hmm. and we did at least recognize each other enough from that and he had like read the script because you couldn't read the scripts beforehand mm-hmm. and he had liked it and we chatted and we clicked and no one else there <laughs> there was really no one else there that either of us were that interested in working with was there did you find when people were reading it like were there other people who were interested in directing it or was it I mean New Ideas is like this festival at the Alumni Theater, yeah. which is you know a great place for, for for playwrights to get their stuff done for the first time. Oh yeah, it's and a wonderful also, thing. It's a wonderful thing. Um, probably the Godzilla thing is not something that a lot of the people there were particularly familiar with yeah. at the time. And I don't think like 
I don't want to like puff up my own ego and say, and say that and say that like we've sort of introduced geek theater to Toronto. And we, I don't think that's true, but I feel like we were part of the crest of that wave, and I don't think that anyone was doing plays like that at that point. I don't think that there are people. I, I still have to say that I don't think there are people who are doing it regularly. There might there might be an occasional single play that comes up, usually at Fringe or something like that, where it's mm-hmm. like, "Look, we're nerds too," and it's something like that. And maybe Sex T Rex. Uh, is sort of like an example of like taking like some some really nice geek tropes and putting them on the stage, but yeah, and they do a lot of good stuff at like Bad Dog, a lot exactly, of improv yeah. stuff that but they, ties in. I don't think anybody has really any. There's anybody else who's done on a regular basis straight up plays that are of the kind of stuff that you've written, which are specifically uh, plays that deal with um, either. Things in pop culture or people who who are who are basically nerds or geeks, yeah, which is very. I mean, I think it's unusual, yeah. uh, in a good way. Just to put that out, there. I think <laughs> well, I, I would hope so. Like it, you've done, I've done a few of several them. of them. But, but I, I do think that it's that nerd culture is something that that I mean, it's portrayed. You, we see it in books and we see it on TV. And we see it in movies, but I don't think it finds its way down the stage very often. And I wonder, and please pipe in if you think that I'm full of shit or if you agree with me, (laughs) um, if it's theater often thinks of itself as too important to deal with these sorts of things. It it, it wants to deal with big themes rather than people who like movies and books and TV and comic books. Yeah, I think that's fair, and I think that it kind of ties too into. Um, I know that you've read um, Jordan Daniel's book, um, Theater of the Unimpressed. Mm-hmm. We were talking mm-hmm. about it, um, sort of back and forth before that. The idea of like the the great play, and I think that there's an idea that even like contemporary playwrights should be trying to write the great play yeah. of this time, and because I didn't sort of like made by bones in that kind of culture mm-hmm. and I was more soaked in as a kid more yeah. soaked in like comic books and pulp novels and stuff that I just want to tell the story and these yeah. are the stories that come out of my head so yeah. it's interesting because to you know to talk about the, the Jordan Tannehill thing there are parts of that book that I find myself nodding like the, the well made play and everything resolving yeah. things like that I'm nodding my head a lot to that um, the stuff that where it almost seems like he's like talking about like I'm with him in that book until he's talking about how awesome he is, and then I'm well, like, and that's... like, no, you can stop now. But most of what he's talking about is, I think, I think he's right yeah. about the way that that fear has been created here, um, and it's interesting because Monkey Man, I mean, didn't create plays in that way. Almost in in some ways, I mean, like indie theater like yeah. as indie as you can get like how do we how do we get this on a stage as cheaply as possible well, and you know it, exactly <laughs> well I mean for sure for sure um, in terms of uh, uh, you, you guys uh, when you came together you, you sort of did you have a, a, a vision for what you wanted Monkey Man to be or was it just like let's be nerdy and be proud of it on theater, in theater I think it was just, and we can sort of loop back around to that original production of Godzilla mm-hmm. on Sundays by talking about this, that I had met Marty, and he, when we decided we wanted to do it, we, the original draft of Godzilla on Sundays and the version that we did later on to produce ourselves is like an hour and a half. Mm-hmm. We had a 45-minute slot at um, 
new ideas. And we decided that instead of trying to tell half the story, we would condense the entire play down to 45 okay. minutes. Okay. So that was fun. But but we managed it. And so Marty was like, well, I know these two actors. I used to work with you, do stuff with him at Ryerson when he was there. Mm-hmm. Um, that was Brad Rowe and um, Tim Nutt, Tim Nussie. Mm-hmm. And so we went through that production, and it was awesome for us. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think new, new Ideas liked us well enough they, like, kept doing my plays after that, yeah. but um, didn't quite know what to do with us. But afterwards, we had such a good time that really we formed the company because we were like, none of us are having experiences like this in theater. Let's mm-hmm. keep doing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, in terms of like, when you're condensing this 90-minute play in 45 minutes, and to be honest, I don't, I think that New Ideas... They almost never want to do a play that long. Oh, yeah. Was it hard to convince them to do 45 minutes, or did, were they like... Well, no, that was the slot they gave me. Okay. Um, I was... I didn't know a lot about the festival before. I didn't know a lot about the company before. Yeah. I just, again, I was submitting to anything that I thought mm-hmm. it might fit into. And they did say, like, in the call, that they would do, like, pieces of larger plays. Mm-hmm. So I think the difficult part was, again, trying to talk them afterwards into saying that we thought the better idea was to give the audience the full story, even if we sort of had to do it at at, at running speed. So. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I I know they don't, they tend not to like the way they're long, so they can fit more into a night if it's shorter stuff. But, I mean, they've, They've done, you know, they've done, there's a bunch of stuff that they've done that's, that's like, really amazing. Yeah, and, I mean, they've changed that rule since then, because Inktart was the same thing. Inktart was, like, I mean, I only had, I only had the first act at that point, but it was 45 minutes, and they said that was the longest slot they gave. They don't do that anymore. No. I think the longest slot now is 15 minutes. I think it's 15 to 20 minutes. I think it's, I think the last time I did it, it was, like, I think we were going into 25 minutes, and they kept being, like, it's got to be 20 minutes, guys. It's got to be 20 minutes, guys. But they... Let us go twenty five, but yeah. that was like as far as they as they push us, or they'd let us push. Yeah. Um, out of uh, that play, the, what was the first truly Monkey Man production? What was the first thing that you guys did when it was under the banner of Monkey Man Productions? I think it probably would have been the first um, Monkey Sci Fi Horror Theater because mm-hmm. we our first production was um, we did a co production with another company. I blank on their name now, but it was called Theater of the Obsessed, and mm-hmm. it was like, we did three short pieces of mine that were all kind of um, thrown together a little bit, mm-hmm. and they did a one-person 45-minute piece about mm-hmm. some like alien abduction story, mm-hmm. and it was kind of kind of cool, and so it kind of fit in with our like right. sort of theme, too, but after that, I think it was the next, next show after that was Monkey Sci-Fi Horror Theater, mm-hmm. which was... Um, the second version, the original version of um, Final Flight of the Phoenix, had mm-hmm. been in our first production, but the but the but the better, like sort of improved version of Final Flight of the Phoenix, which was sort of my takeoff on Star Trek, mm-hmm. and um, Dead Man's Party, which was our zombie apocalypse yes. play. Right, right, right. Um, in terms of like so that was like a double bill. Yeah. And uh, do you remember? Um, like, at what point did, did you write these pieces? Oh, okay, so you wrote. Uh, you wrote Final Fight of the Phoenix and you did that at, at this sort of like double bill or that triple bill that yeah, the the when you were thinking about doing that again um, had you already written Dead Man's Party or were you uh, was that something that you were like uh, I need to write something for a second piece or? yeah I think Dead Man's Party was new I think Dead Man's Party came out of the idea that um, we one of the best things and um 
like some of our core members, like Brad sort of drifted away a little bit mm-hmm. and um, Tim's sort of had to focus more on work in the past few years. But in the, like those first years, we would go and we would have company meetings that were literally just us sitting there for two hours laughing our asses off, mm-hmm. making like inside jokes that would never work, right. like just goofing off on off ideas and stuff. And so Dead Man's Party was sort of the idea that we would just do that on stage. <laughs> it was just written for like all four of us to yeah. act together. Because mm-hmm. like I, again, like never planned on acting again. Right. But, yeah, but yeah, it was yeah. just for the chance of us, for us to be like big goofballs on stage together. Mm-hmm. And deciding that, hey, if we have fun with that, maybe people will have fun watching it. And they seem to. Yeah. They seem to. Yeah, I think it... Can I ask you about your your writing? Like, if if you if you have a process for writing, uh, can you just well? Do you have a process for writing, or are you one of those like I sit down and I write and then I fix? Because I that's how I write. I write. I sit down. I'm like, I'm going to start writing and I'll fix it later. Yeah, but you're a lot better. You're, I actually feel like you're you're a lot better at this point at like the um, practice than I am as far as you actually make yourself write regularly mm. and you're pretty good about um, like writing every day or every few days whereas I have whole months at a time or mm-hmm. several months that'll go by where I just can't push myself to do it. Mm-hmm. The day job mm-hmm. is too much yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. everything else is just sort of getting on me but at the same time it's still building and building yeah. until you, have you just can't help yeah, but yeah. do it and I'm sort of at that point right now mm-hmm. um, the and we can talk later about like what our current project is if you want to, mm-hmm. but um, the current project we're supposed to be working on, um, I had a meeting with uh, with Marty and with Lisa last fall and said, okay, I'm going to have have a draft for you by the end of January, mm-hmm. and then the election happened yes. and the world yes. fell apart, yes. yeah, and and I mean one of the things is just sort of like and I think all like all artists everywhere are doing this right now, just sort of questioning what you create, yeah in the aftermath of that. I, I have to say, you know, I, I, I feel that way. It's like, yeah. you know, I started I started as something and occasionally the worse it gets, the more I'm like, is this enough? Is this yeah. enough? Do I have to, like, I feel like I need to be, like, writing something more. I yeah. Start, like, because angrier. Well, no. I don't need to be angry. I need to start taking that anger and putting it on paper. Yeah. Because we mostly do, like, yeah. kind of silly stuff and it's got a heart and it's got important stuff mm-hmm. in it. But it's fairly, like, fairly light and fairly yeah. silly and so and that certainly the project that I pitched was going to be like that and now it's just do I have the right to sort of take the time for that and do I have the right to well, I mean at least right now yeah. when things are so bad and things are like like I feel like I can't I've got a bad like I can't really go to marches mm. and stuff but I like feel like I have to give every spare dollar to places mm. and I feel like I have to like be like following the news and writing yeah. my MP every day and stuff that how how do I like switch tracks from that to writing like a silly little like my Ripley's Believe It or Not takeoff, which it's, is kind of what I'm playing with right now. It's hard to figure that like it's hard to do that like to to have this sustained. I don't want to. I feel like I'm somewhere between sustained anger and sustained mourning, yeah, or something. Um, somewhere in the middle of that, and and I find. That occasionally, I, the way that I look at Facebook now or yeah. on social media is just like uh, I used to enjoy it, and now I feel like I have to to keep on. I need to know what's going on. Oh yeah, but more in the in the terms of like uh, just almost horror of at what's going on in the world. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so I mean, it's just like how do you do your do your work? I mean, do your creative work after that, and. 
especially knowing that and there are people who write tremendous political mm-hmm. plays and God love them and it's amazing that's never going to be my thing mm-hmm. so <laughs> despite the fact that I would love to be able to like use my talent and, sort of, and immediately switch tracks to being able to yeah. that's not what I'm good at and so I have to find ways to sort of take the things I am good at and maybe make them more aware and make them a little more awake. Yeah. You know, one of the things, I mean, you said earlier about how, you know, I'm making, I'm doing more, making, you know, my practice is is maybe more advanced than yours. But I'm yeah. going to come clean and say there's a lot of times when I sit with a notebook and, you know, I have my phone. So maybe I look a little more on Facebook. Oh, yeah, for sure. And, but one of the things I do do is... There are nights of the week where I go and I write. I leave work, and I'm still looking for the right place because you need sort of like if you don't have an office at home, which I don't, my office yeah. is in the living room. You need to like a place where you feel like you can sit for a while and write, and there's not too much going on. You feel like it feeds you, and I'm still trying to find the right place. But I sit for two hours with my notebook or whatever it is that I'm writing in this week, <laughs> um, and I sit and. And there are two hours there with me in this notebook. Yeah. And so I, I do something. But, you know, there are nights that I'm like, I don't want to fucking do this thing. I want to <laughs> go home and I want to fire up my Xbox and I want to shoot things. And I don't yeah. want to think. But I, there, there are the nights that I know that I'm, I'm writing. And that's one of the things that I've found has improved my, my writing chances, like my ability yeah. to write stuff. Is just by setting aside the time. It's like non-negotiable. Yeah. Um, and I think that you know, maybe for some of that time, like an hour of that that time, maybe I'm staring at my notebook, thinking about all the political things. But after a while, I think it goes away. And I think we do have a right to and a need to write light stuff. Like we, there's got to come a time when people need a break. Yeah. You know, it's like. When bad things happen, we can rage for a little while, but we do need a break from rage. And the stuff that you the the, the you write and stuff that I I tend to write because I'm not a huge I don't write really political stuff. I don't, I never have, and that's not where my head goes. I want to write lighter stuff than that. I mean, some of it's serious, but I like to I like to write some stuff. Yeah. And I don't know that that if that's not where we are comfortable writing. I don't think we should force ourselves to do that. Um, you mentioned that other project that that you sort of like, is there anything you could tell us about that? Because Monkey, oh, yeah, sure. Monkey Man, ha- like you guys had a production that you were going to do and, and due to an actor having to leave, you couldn't continue with it. Yeah, um, this would have been fall of 2015. We were getting ready for to do and it still breaks my heart a little to talk about it because I think it's one of the, still one of the best things I've written a play of mine called um, The Beast from Planet X which was sort of a mashup of um, sort of a straight office play and 50s sci-fi mm-hmm. and it was sort of exploring um, how the culture of fear has changed a lot of the like old cheesy sci-fi movies Forbidden Planet things like that that I was drawing from are, were about the things that America was afraid of at that point yeah the unknown, um, nuclear energy, mm-hmm. all sorts of things like that. And so I was sort of contrasting that with things we're afraid of now, mm-hmm. which have changed quite a bit and mm-hmm. a lot of and are usually more um, internalized. Mm-hmm. We're afraid of people on our doorstep. We're not afraid of what might face us in the unknown. Mm-hmm. So 
it was something that was sort of I felt like it was a big going to be a big step for us. Right. And we had put a lot of time, a lot of money, a lot of energy into it. And one of our main actors had a death in the family mm. and had to leave the country to deal with it. Mm. And obviously you can't feel like you can't feel bad about that you for, can't for their sake. You can't yeah, fault yeah. them. But it was someone who it was impossible to replace in time and right. we had serious talks about it and decided that there was nothing we could do. Mm. We had to halt the production. It was um in particular, the um, character was um, had been written, and this was something that Marty had brought to it. And um, one of the coolest things from our collaboration on the piece was making this character non-binary. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so we had gone out of our way to like we're writing our first non-binary character. We don't want to cast. You don't want to cast somebody. You don't want to cast like a cis male or something. Exactly like to play that part. And so we had found an amazing non-binary actor to play that part, and. They had to cut out, mm-hmm. and we had had to pull our hair out to find like someone for that. As it was, it was. We were never going to be able to recast right. that in time. So we pulled out. Um, unfortunately, we couldn't pull out of our rental contract, no. and that was that's painful. Three thousand dollars down the drain. We tried to do like a series of readings, to sort of just fill the space, and some of those were fun. I mm-hmm. actually, um, for one of them, I rewrote um, Godzilla gender swap. Mm-hmm. Okay, which was kind of fun without without changing the gender of the like spouse that had right. been sort of mm-hmm. the point of contention. So that was kind of fun, and there were some other things. We did a reading of one of Cat Sandler's pieces mm-hmm. and did a similar thing, yeah. gender swap the characters, and that was kind of fun, but absolutely no money out of it yeah. in fact we unfortunately lost more money for the friend who helped produce that, it that can that can really put the kibosh on on stuff yeah so we sat down after that and said it's not even just the money I mean okay we're down to a fourth of our like operating budget mm-hmm. but just nobody could face trying to like move from that and creating something new a few months mm-hmm. later so we decided we were going to take 2016 and just go on hiatus mm-hmm. and did after taking that break, because I know that I think at one point there might have been some talk about doing uh, uh, the I want to call it the banana, whatever it was the whatever it was called after all. I think it was the, um, the banana festival at one time, and then it was the now now you've got me else. now yeah. you've got me blanking. Yeah. Um, but I yeah, we were no. getting we, but yeah we were getting ready. We already had the call for scripts out right. for our spring festival, but and we had about like. 150, 200 submissions, mm-hmm. and I had to go back and email each of them and say, "Sorry, we're not producing theater yeah. in 2016, and we're not sure how we're going to come back." Mm-hmm. So, can I? After, after, were you guys? Did you guys take a break from like each other in 2016, or did you? Did you? Were you meeting to talk about kind 2017? It's fair. Um, in that, like, I saw Marty a few times, and I saw Lisa a few times, but we didn't actually get together until mid-fall to sit down as Monkey Man and start talking about what, if anything, we were going to take bring back. And actually, our first meeting was just that, just sitting down and saying, do we want to come back? Can, can we come back? It, I, I take it, since you're talking about a project that you're writing for Monkey Man, that the answer to that ultimately is yes. It is, but we're talking about coming back in very small and very tentative ways. Mm-hmm. One of the things that... Um, sort of came up out of that is that none of us are sure that we want to produce theater right now. Mm. And so we're talking about a radio play idea mm. and that's what I'm like t- t- 
teasing around it right now. And it took a while because I had to, like, I don't know if this happens for you, but for me, any idea that I come up with arrives with its own format. Arrives with like what it's going to be. It's uh, it's either an idea that can be a poem. It's an idea that can be a short story. It's an idea that can be a play. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't just take one of my. In fact, we talked about whether or not we could adapt Planet X into right. a radio play, and eventually decided it wouldn't really work as well mm-hmm. because a lot of what made the play work was transitions back and forth between worlds. Right. And so I had to like sit down and like toy through ideas and like give my brain time to roam and just sort of try to come up with a radio play idea. Mm-hmm. Did you, did you find that, because I tend to be, I mean, although I, I, you know, I write a lot of dialogue, that I tend to be um, visual. So the idea of, of writing, and, you know, now that I'm saying it, I think, I don't know if I'm right, I always hear people say, radio is a visual medium, you know? And, <laughs> but I, again, you can't just, like, say, you can't have something that relies on people seeing what's going yeah. on, you know? Did you find that? Do you, are you finding that a challenge to write with? I think it's one of the things that um, is making it a little more difficult mm-hmm. to get into. Um, just sort of allowing my my brain to switch tracks that way because mm-hmm. it is like I mean, my plays are obviously like dialogue is really important to mm-hmm. me as well. But yeah, you very much you think not that not that I write stage directions particularly since Marty always ignores them yeah. but <laughs> but I mean you do you think about people up there and you think yeah. about what they're going to do and how they're going to look up the moving back and forth up mm-hmm. there and yeah coming up with radio play mm-hmm. and especially because um, we've started talking about the way we're, we would do it too and it's important that I like when I look at scripts for radio plays and when I've looked at like um YouTube videos about like how to do it and stuff. Mm-hmm. They talk about like doing it full force, like writing in the the like sound effects and everything. And I don't want to like a big part of like collaborating with Lisa, our tech person on this, is that she's in, excited about like going in there and like deciding on sounds mm-hmm. and putting stuff in there. Mm-hmm. So I'm still only really want to be writing the dialogue and leaving her space to like comp with the other stuff that she wants to do and letting her fill in like the gaps to make it visual for the audience yeah. or make it feel, uh, feel full, feel rich for the audience. And so the way we're talking about doing it is me just writing the scenes mm-hmm. almost like I would for a play, taking them in and we'll like b- b- bounce them around. We'll talk about like revisions and things we're, that we're interested in. And then Lisa will go back and start working on what she would want to play with as far as sound. I'll go back and clean up the dialogue. And then Marty, yeah. of course, would still be directing. Just, I mean, you know, I mean, if you think about it, I mean, if she's learned anything from Marty, that you'll write <laughs> stage directions and, and, and you know, they can be ignored. Although, on the other side of that, um, once something is written down, I know they always say actors don't read the stage directions, but we always do. Yeah. And they always do um, if, infer, they always infect what we're doing. Yeah. And, you know, we'll always ask about them. <laughs> don't pay any attention to the stage directions. Um, is... Do you, I mean, you were saying that, you know, with the election and everything, you're feeling a little, a little, uh, like you haven't, you didn't finish it by the end of January. Yeah. Um, are you feeling like, are you feeling depleted in terms of the, the, that story or are you still? I still, I guess what I'm trying to do is give myself permission to go back to that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because then I, I sort of spend a while too being like, okay, how can I weave this other stuff into it? Yeah. So it's touching on deeper things and greater mm. issues and 
if that happened, that would be fine. But I kind of feel like I'm making it too hard on myself now, yeah. too. And so I'm just trying to get back in the headspace where I can let myself just play with the original idea and see what happens. Is there a specific... Are you trying to do, like, a single sit, like a uh, single radio play of a specific length? Or are you thinking episodic for it? Or? It's something that... Um, like, we're not committing ourselves to anything at this point, and we're certainly not going to, like, go around saying this is the first episode in an ongoing mm. serial, but um, it's something that could lend itself mm. to it. It's the, the basic idea without giving away too much, because Marty will, like, show up out of nowhere and hit me with a 2 by 4 and give away yeah. too much. What he does. But the way I sort of pitched it to them is, what if Robert Ripley were two middle-aged lesbians in a pot belly pig? <laughs> uh, okay. Uh... So it's sort of this, like, ongoing... It's like adventure story thing for with like sort of and sort of inspired by um, I know you know the comic book Lumberjanes mm-hmm. and the cartoon Gravity Falls sort of inspired by these sort of like cartoonish adventure um, cryptozoology kind of things mm-hmm. and sort of creating an episodic thing for that and Marty just in our initial discussions Marty sort of added another layer into it that's kind of fun sort of grounding in the real world and um like there are a lot of places we could take it if it sort of, if it if it kicked off, but I think right now we're just sort of let's try doing it once and seeing mm-hmm. if it works, and if not, then like we haven't committed ourselves to anything this year anyway. Yeah. The I mean, just from a certain point of view, the giving yourself the permission to to maybe do something later. You can once it's finished, like once it's written, you can decide on that. Yeah, for sure. Decide how long it's going to be. Um, I want to. I want to actually jump back to, to. We were talking earlier about your um, your early days in, in Pennsylvania, sure. uh, when you were at like a religious school and things like that. <laughs> when, in terms of now, you know, I I can, you know I went. I didn't go to, to like a Christian school, but uh, when I was a lot younger, my family was very uh, fundamentalist, and, and you know, so we, you know. I, I could sort of relate. I knew people who went to the, went to a Christian school in there. Yeah. I knew people who were way more fundamentalist than we were, and they were like, "Oh, superhero, not superheroes. That's satanic. Like anything that was like pop culture or might have yeah. somebody who had like, I don't know, like eyes that looked evil or something. That's satanic. We can't we can't look at that. Did you did did you were you did you find it difficult to get your hands on pop pop culture stuff? Did your family shy away from it? And if so, when did you start to discover it? The one real blessing that I think I had was that my parents were, like, fairly focused on their own lives and didn't really pay much attention to what we were doing as kids. They were very much of the, like, plop us in front of the television and go do their own thing and not pay attention to us. Mm -hmm. So we watched a lot of what we wanted to... um, once I started like buying books on my own, they weren't really paying attention to the books I bought mm. or read at the time matter because we started like going to the library and stuff. My mom always took us to the library when we were kids, and I went through like the children's section in about a year, <laughs> and then started taking out adult books. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so they were like not paying a lot of attention. Where they did was if it was something they were buying for me. So I was really lagged behind on music. Mm. Like, I didn't get into popular music until I was, like, late high school when I started buying things. Were they buying you Christian rock, or were they, like, Um, anti-rock? No, they weren't. Like, I started buying myself Christian rock, because that was the way way that it was, like, acceptable way in. But no, my mother was, like, big, like, Barry Manilow and Beach Boys and, like, all the, like, light stuff. And 
in fact, when I was in seventh grade, and this was one of the years that I switched back and forth to public school, we did in music class. We were doing this project in seventh. And this is again seventh grade, mm-hmm. where everybody had to do a uh, presentation on their favorite bands, and so people are going in there and they're doing like Blue Oyster Cult yeah. and whatever else was like popular at the time. And I went and did the Beach Boys. Uh, so that'll tell you about how popular that I does, was. That does. <laughs> I, I'm going to tell you like an embarrassing story when I was a kid because I knew that. The popular music came on like small forty fives, and so in my mind, the the little records that was the popular music. So I found an, an uh, uh, a forty five at a garage sale. I didn't even pay attention to what it was. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, this is a small record. That means it's popular. That yeah. So I was popular at school. So there was like I think on like Friday afternoons we could put like music on, and so I was like, this is this is this is how I'm going to become popular. I'm going to take this. I'm going to put it on. Which tells you how truly nerdy I was that I would think that this thing that I had just because it's this yeah. must mean that it's like going to be popular. So I put it on. It was like Dean Martin singing "Ain't That a Kick in the Head," nice. and by the reaction of everybody in the room, I knew that this was not <laughs> what I was what I thought it was going to be. And so I very quickly like I was like, "Nope, not that." And I think yeah. I got rid of it. I don't know where that went, but like, so you know, I I can relate. But it kind of took me in odd ways that I think did like wind up fueling the way that I create now. Um, Certainly, um, Godzilla came Mm -hmm. from like very literally like spending Sunday afternoons sitting there watching old Godzilla movies on like whatever the New York Channel was that we got Mm -hmm. in at the time, and um, a lot of the sort of odd humor that I have is based on the fact that I used to go to like Goodwill and buy. Mm -hmm albums there I had a record player uh-huh. and so I had like Spike Lee mm-hmm. and I had Stan Freeberg and okay. like these were my comic influences yeah. as a child did you, ever, did you ever try to sneak listening to or did you had you heard of Dr. Dr. Demento at the time and try to sneak um, that in I didn't know about him yeah. until later on but obviously the kind of stuff he was doing and in fact um, it's kind of a funny story later on when I was sort of getting to the point where I was buying some quote unquote popular stuff and my mom was sort of very vetting very carefully I bought um, it was when Weird Al in 3D came out Mm -hmm. and I talked her into it I'm there at the record store begging her to let me buy it on cassette and she would only let me buy it if I promised to tape over Nature Trail to Hell because it had the word Ella that's all she knows about it of course yes yes, 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 (laughs) and of course I promised and of course I never did of course you did of course you did but again like once something was in the house she didn't pay much attention to it so Mm -hmm. Um, were you were you a comic reader? Were you a sci- you were a sci-fi reader? What was you I was a big sci-fi reader. Um, I didn't get into comic books. Well, I was in comic books much when I was a little kid, mm-hmm. but then I didn't get back into them really until um, university mm-hmm. when I was like buying stuff on my own. But um, yeah, sci-fi novels all the way. Like I would go to my favorite day of the year wasn't a holiday. My favorite day of the year was when the library would have their big book sale, uh-huh. and by the end of the day. They would just want to clear out the tables, so you give them like five bucks and fill a garbage like on a garbage bag, but like a shopping bag full nice. of books. And I would do that. I would do that like three or four times, and I would be like waddling home. Of course, yeah. Um, for me in school, it was the the Scholastic Book Fair, like the Book yeah. Fair day, which was like, you know, what book you're gonna get? You get the magazine, and you like agonize over. You get, yeah. I can only have one. <laughs> um, did you ever? ever doubt bringing pop culture onto into theater was there any ever a time when you were like uh, I don't know if this is 
this counts because of the topic, or did, or did you just know that it was a thing that you wanted to do? I think certainly at first it helped, like when we had the company and I had Marty and Brad and Tim, and we were just really instead of focusing on whether or not it was real theater, we were like, finally, we're having fun doing this thing. <laughs> and but certainly, it's something I still agonize about mm-hmm. because we've been doing this for. Well, seven years, because we took last year off. Mm-hmm. Um, and our audiences still usually range around maybe 120, 130 over the mm-hmm. run of a show. Mm-hmm. And that's not enough to... That's barely enough to keep from losing money every year. Have, have you thought... I mean, obviously, I mean, in indie theater, the, the biggest barrier uh, is, aside from money, is advertising and, and getting yeah. the word out. Which is literally, like, what, like, if you can't advertise, you can't get an audience. So yeah. if you can't figure, if you can't crack that nut, what do you do? And of course, all of that stuff costs money. Um, have you guys ever thought about what, what, like what? Consider what you might be missing to take it further, or is there anything that like comes to mind when you think about that, or is it just like I don't know what it is how we crack that nut? Yeah, we've talked about it a lot, but I don't think any of us really has been able to figure it out. Mm-hmm. I think we all feel like the quality of the shows we're putting on is is like sufficient. Mm-hmm. And I mean, we keep trying to make it better, obviously, but I feel like we're doing good shows. I feel like we're just not good at getting the word out there. And I feel like our audience... We started out really deliberately trying to target a non-theater audience, theater audience mm-hmm. because theater audiences weren't really interested in what we were doing. Mm-hmm. And we had them for a while, but it's been really hard to retain that audience. The, I, I guess that, that... I mean, the non-theater audience is going to come for a specific thing. Yeah. Right? They're going to come when you're doing something that sort of speaks to them right now. They're not going to be your audience. They're a fickle... They're a fickle lover. They're not going it's to... Fair. It, well, it, I mean, it, so are regular so theater regular audiences. audiences yeah. <laughs> but, but the thing about regular theater audiences is they tend to be people who, like, they're inclined to go to theater. And so if you can, yeah. if you can like, give them some kind of tagline that's going to be interesting to them, they, they're going to come out. Yeah. But finding there are very few people who can who can target that non theater audience to keep them coming back. Yeah. I mean, somebody like you know, Theater Bruhaha, Cat Sandler and the gang. They're they're really good at that. They could almost yeah. do like if are you guys listening? Do a class. Do like some <laughs> kind of course that people can come to and learn from you because you are yeah. doing the Lord's work. <laughs> but again, I feel like the audience they're targeting, and I just, um, I had sort of like been catching up on mm-hmm. stage where they a little bit beforehand, yeah. and I read, I listened to your conversation with Tom again, and um, he talks about very much like they're talk- targeting that very sort mm-hmm. of like metro, yeah. young metro audience, and I feel like that's an audience that goes out and does things more in general mm-hmm. and yeah. is more likely to go out. Like our, our, like our target audience is more likely to stay home and like watch Civil War. Again. You know, the thing, the thing is that I, I wonder if like your target audience, because nerd shit is more popular than it has ever been. Um, and I don't know that... that just to play devil's advocate on that. That's fair. Because I think that maybe your audience is, they just need to know about it. Because if people go to see, like, they'll go to the movie theater, 
to watch Star Wars, to watch this, that, to watch the Marvel movie, if the something tickles them, if they can have an experience, if it's something that they want, I think they would go. But it's it's that whole like how do you how do you reach them? Yeah, and that's um, and that's fair, and I mean obviously that's like what we counted on for yeah. a long time, well, yeah. but. Um, I do feel like part of the problem is like none of us are just really that great at promotion and something we, we tried to teach ourselves yeah. and never been that good at. And then we sort of hit a point around year five or so where fatigue really, really sit in. I mean, we mm-hmm. did, we've been yeah, doing, yeah. For, we did for seven years, we did two, at least two, sometimes three productions a year. Yeah, that's a lot. And, and it was, and it wasn't like we were trading off. It was usually the same people. Mm-hmm. It wound up, um, we started sort of like, Bleeding members after a while, real life got to a bunch of them, yeah. and other projects got out to, to a bunch of them, and it wound up being the same core three or four people who were producing and directing and writing every show. That is a lot, and and especially when you're out of your comfort zone, because you know what, producing is one thing on its own, but then when you have to pile marketing on top of yeah. that, like just when you're thinking about okay, so I need money for, I need a space, I need costumes, I need this, that, and the other thing. Oh, and now you have to write a press release, and you have to talk to people yeah. and get the word out. That is not an easy thing, and uh, I'm st- more and more I'm understanding, you know, why people splurge for like a publicity person, oh, a yeah. person. Now that shit ain't cheap, unfortunately. So I don't know how indie theater is going to do it, but I don't know. There's there's got to be a way. Um, and if I knew, I would tell you, well, and, yeah. and we would we would laugh all the way to the bank <laughs> with the next with with Nerd Hamilton or whatever it is that we're gonna that we're that we would create. Um, do you? I mean, you're sort of like um, with Monkey Man, sort of uh, putting your feet back into the water a little bit after your your year of of, of a break. Um, do you feel like you guys are, are hungry to do something, or are you really sort of? Like you're gonna do this this radio thing, and if that doesn't work, you're done. Or do you think that you that there is a, there that this this thing that you guys do has a future? I think that's sort of where we're struggling right mm-hmm. now. We're struggling. To, I mean, it's not this not necessarily this particular project, mm-hmm. but it's the fact that we sat down and this was the only one that seemed really viable mm-hmm. at the moment. But just the fact that we're not. I don't want to say strong enough, but we're not together enough right now to reach out and try to pull other people in. Yeah. You kind of have to have like a good, a solid base and a solid idea of what you're asking people to commit to, yeah. to do yeah. that. And we don't really have the money to throw at things right now. Mm-hmm. So we have to start small. And I think we're just yeah. sort of, it was good to have a year off. And I tried a bunch of things that I hadn't gotten to try before. Um, I got to play around with interactive fiction, which is something I always wanted mm-hmm. to do. Um, I got to write some little pieces that were completely unlike anything the Monkey Man would ever produce, mm-hmm. and send those out into the world. And you revisited uh, and Ink Tart, yeah, Ink Tart, yeah. which which you got to do, yeah, which again was something that Monkey Man was never going to wind up producing. So I mean, we had, I mean, I remember when I, there was there was a time we were talking about it, but yeah. it didn't quite fit with Monkey Man's usual yeah. thing. Um, did, did have you found creatively that taking? I mean, you've done all these things. Do you feel like after two thousand sixteen, a little bit rejuvenated in in creatively, or, or do you feel like not doing stuff has been? 
I think I will when I can start writing again. Like, seriously, um, and it's not just politically. Like, mm-hmm. I had some other stuff. I had some health struggles, mm-hmm. and I almost got fired, which can be But But, like, a lot of other things I was struggling with in the past couple of months, but... Definitely, I feel like I, I feel like I, can, I mean I can, and I'm starting to lift my head again. Mm-hmm. I'm starting to think about things, but it was such a huge blow, and honestly, it still kills me when I when we sat down and talked about like whether or not we were going to start again. The one thing one thing we had to start with was we can't go back and do Planet X right now. Mm-hmm. We just can't start with that. We lost too much trying to do it last time to try to rebuild from that point, and it just killed me. Well, it also, I mean, I can see from a certain point of view, like. This is the thing that sort of like made you have to take the time off. Yeah. Is this the thing to to start again with? And if it demoralized you when it didn't work out, then like, why would you want to face it again yeah. so soon? Because we put everything into it. Because yeah, we put our, because like it, literally that year, twenty fifteen, I went through probably five rewrites of it, five mm-hmm. major rewrites of it with Marty, and we changed huge chunks of it. Yeah. He came up with a lot of th- stuff for it. He came up with making the character non-binary, mm-hmm. which was a huge like step forward and something else that we had wanted to do. We've talked a lot about representation. Mm-hmm. We went through casting very deliberately, making sure that we had a multicultural cast. Yeah. Because one of the things I said was, okay, if we're doing an office story, there's no office I've ever been in in Toronto that's all white people. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And... Um, but so we were pushing for all these things and like taking all these steps and we felt like we were also proud of what was coming together and then like, to sort of be cut off at the knees. You always put your put everything into like stuff when you do it, right? I mean, if you didn't, you wouldn't be doing it, right? I mean if you didn't yeah. if it if your heart wasn't in it you wouldn't be doing like you wouldn't be throwing money at that, you'd be saving it for a vacation or something. Yeah, but that's fair. It's, but it felt like a big step forward for us in a lot of ways. Yeah. And so it was hard to um, to talk about starting again mm-hmm. and say, okay, we're starting again from doing very small. Mm-hmm. We're starting again from doing the sort of thing that we could have done the first year. Right. Well, I mean, I, I, the theater landscape has changed in, in, yeah. in a certain way. In fact, in 2016, the theater landscape changed... Hugely. I mean, we Seriously. lost uh, a number of independent spaces. Yeah, that's the thing now, is yeah. that like it's getting harder and harder to find space, much less afford it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, there's still a little bit more than there was when your choices were uh, Palmerston Library, Factory, Passmerai, or Tarragon. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, just to lose these independent spaces is a blow in its, uh, on its own. But, I mean, that's changed the landscape, and, you know, the it's hard to hard to face it again sometimes yeah. I guess you know um, are there themes like as you start to you know bring your you know lift your head up from you know all of the and let's face it right now when we're recording this this is it, it, things are shit they really politically are. there are it is worst every day it is hard to like wake up in the morning and, and, and feel like I'm like this is a day to create a thing um are there things that that you can that you're finding that are as you're lifting your head out of the the post election you know <laughs> blanket um, that are uh, that are fueling you that are attracting you to to stories or are you still trying to find those? I think 
Certainly there are things in like pop culture that are still inspiring me. I'm a huge fan of Steven Universe right now, right now which I know mm-hmm. you've seen me like post about a million yeah, yeah, times yeah. and talk about. And I have a tattoo of, for God's sake. Like Six months after I started watching the show, I got a tattoo based on it. <laughs> but um, And one of the things I like most about that is that it manages to deal with some pretty weighty stuff, but it's overwhelmingly positive. Mm. And even like when they introduce a character who seems evil or seems like antagonistic that eventually there's a chance that they can be redeemed mm. and um, I just feel like and I've never really done this I mean you know my work yeah, it's yeah. it's yeah. it's fun it's like dorky but it's there aren't a whole lot of really like happy endings yeah. and one of the things that I wrote that I was proudest of last, last year like Inktart was great but mm-hmm. Inktart was pretty much already there it was just cleaning up and making yeah. it and like polishing it was a little 10 minute play called Stars mm-hmm. which is just um, like two long distance and I very specifically said I didn't want them to be like recognizably like male or female mm-hmm. just sort of these like agender characters like talking on the phone from across the world and mm-hmm. just like having this like random little conversation looking up at the stars and you eventually find out that like they're in love and they haven't met yet mm-hmm. and so it's just about like this little positive little thing about mm-hmm. them building each other up and like bolstering each other through this having mm-hmm. to be apart and it's nothing that I would have written like even a year or two before mm-hmm. that because I just would have been I would have felt some need at the end to sort of like put in a twist or put in a well you know we're probably never going to meet or something like that <laughs> but I just feeling like and it's not that there's anything wrong mm-hmm. with no. telling stories the other way but I really feel like right now I have to find ways to like add to the positive energy mm. in the world yeah. through my work. And so that's why, like, the radio play idea, if it works, is it's not ever going to be a big weighty thing, mm. but it's about, like, adventure and exploring and, like, these two characters being, like, head over heels in love with each other. And I think I think we need that. I think that, that more, you know, yeah. as the weeks go on, and although people were angry... That's hard to sustain, and you need a break from that now and then. You need a Stranger Things yeah. to come along to be to to remind you that there's awesome in the world occasionally. Yeah. You know. Well, it's like, and by the time this comes out, it'll be okay to say this. I won't be like spoiling it for anyone. Like I was showing you the picture of the, the tattoo I'm getting mm-hmm. this weekend, yeah. which is a Muppet movie tattoo, yeah. and it's based on like the lyrics from the song at the very end, which is one of the two places in the movie I always break down in tears every time <laughs> since I was a kid. Every yeah. time, but the reason why that resonates so much is it's. I'm probably gonna like mess up just talking <laughs> yeah, again, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's about like it's about creating and it's about like finding people that you work with, and like enjoy working with yeah. and just making that your life and that's I think the reason why we haven't let go of Monkey Man yet is because mm. I still I sit down with Marty and I sit down with Lisa and I sit down with Tim and we joke about things and we talk about the stuff we've done and the stuff we might do in the future and that becomes like that conversation becomes the most rejuvenating thing in my life at that point amazing and that's why it's important for you and it's why it's important for them and it's why it's important for the rest of us yeah. I think well, DJ, thank, thank you so much for, for coming. This well, has I, been a great conversation. Thank you for inviting me.